This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Ultimately, you can't measure the hidden life of the church. And I think part of the gift of rural is that it makes that so clear to us. Hi, I'm Carl Vaders, and welcome to the Church Lobby Podcast, Conversations on Faith and Ministry. My guest in this episode is Brad Roth. He's a Mennonite pastor in rural Kansas. He blogs at doxologyproject.com, and he's the author of the book that today's conversation is based on, God's Country, Faith, Hope, and the Future of the Rural Church. In this episode, Brad and I talk about the four main emphases of his book. In order, they are, one, the importance of the rural church. Two, a word called acedia, which, yes, we will define for you. I needed it defined for me as well. Thirdly, the importance of physical place, that is geography. In our highly technical world, the analog of physical place is becoming more important for people. And then fourthly, a new way to measure growth. There's a lot in this episode for anyone in rural ministry, as well as for those who are looking at ministry options. We want you to consider that the rural church is something that may well be worth your time. And don't forget to stick around when the interview is done. I'll come back with an overview of the content and some practical takeaways. Welcome, Brad, to the conversation today. I read your book, and I've really been looking forward to talking with you. Well, thank you, Carl. It's great to be here. I go to conferences, and maybe about half the time I'll go to a conference, somebody will hand me a book that a friend wrote, right? (laughs) And I always at least skim it and almost always read enough to be able to say that I've read it. And uh, I'm actually gaining a greater appreciation for that in recent years, and yours is one of the ones that's helping me gain a great appreciation for it, because I really got so much out of this, and I believe that people will get a lot out of it as well, so I'm looking forward to it. The book is called God's Country, Faith, Hope, and the Future of the Rural Church. You talk about a lot in this, and so I'm, what I've done is I've gone through and I've picked four key areas that I want to hit on, okay? So we're not going to cover the whole thing, but we'll give them a taste. Is that okay? Can we give them a taste? Let's do that. All righty. So we're going to take a look at the importance of the rural church a word called acedia that you're going to have to explain to us and then walk us through, uh, the importance of place, uh, geography, and then a new way to measure growth, which really corresponds so much with what this ministry is about and with what so many of our listeners uh, have a real concern with. So first of all, I want to say you really have a healthy approach to rural ministry. Rural ministry tends to either be overlooked or idealized, and you refuse to do either one. This is obviously you're not overlooking it because it's a book about rural ministry, but you also don't idealize it. And I want to talk to you about some of those. Like you talk about, I think the phrase you use is urban might make you crazy, but rural might kill you. (laughs) So let's just start right out with that, shall we? 
Yeah, well, that's interesting that that's what you highlight. But I mean, I think there's, I, I'm referring to some stats that show that like there's higher incidence of mental illness in urban areas. And, you know, what, what do we attribute that to? I don't know. But in rural areas, especially when you talk about the most far flung rural places, sometimes you just don't have a hospital within, you know, a heart attacks quick drive. And so yeah. there are some, some ways that you have poor health outcomes when you, when you get to extreme rural. And I, and, you know, that's, I live in a rural community, but we're not as rural as some places, you know, we're 45 minutes out of Wichita, Kansas, the biggest city in Kansas. But my heart is really with churches and pastors and leaders who are laboring in these communities that are, you know, 100 people, 500 people that are an hour and a half from a Walmart, that kind of spot. And you can find some of those places in Western Kansas, but you know, there's surprisingly many of them, um, as especially as you get out here onto the the Great Plains. I, I thought that was interesting, because so often we do tend to either overlook or really idealize, paint this glossy picture of the rural church. And you take a a very realistic approach to it, which is what I really appreciate. So let's start, though, with you, you begin the book by talking about the importance of the rural church. Here's a phrase you use. Uh, Christ loves the rural church. In fact, I'm convinced there is no church without the rural church. Now, explain yourself, sir. Uh- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, I'm committed to that. And I think, you know, what every time we see a church in a little rural community, that is a sign of God's love for all people everywhere. I mean, it's like John three sixteen writ small, right? On that that church, it's like God so loved the world for real. Like even these places that are are, are far flung and hard to get to, and our human communities, rural places, are are just the, have the same kind of like struggles and the same possibilities of beauty and grace as urban and suburban areas, and so we can't idealize it. We're talking about like the struggle against sin and all that comes with that in rural communities, just like in any other place. But the fact that the church is there says something about the nature of the gospel, right? Like it's the, um, it's saying that, that these places matter to God. And we say that like in a kind of a, a flip way, but like, then we've got, it's incarnational, right? Like, and we can be flipping about that too, but like Jesus is present in those places and wherever he is, his servants are also, as Jesus says in John. And so there we are in these spots. And, you know, I, I love it when I talk to a, a pastor who's working in a community of like, like I was talking to one guy who is in South Dakota, rural South Dakota, he's in a community of 80 and he's got a church of 30. It's like, okay, well, you know, that's, that's kind of an amazing thing to say, right? Yeah. When you're in these, these little places and you're so far flung, or I talked to a, a assemblies of God pastor who had to it's an hour and a half drive to the Walmart there in Wyoming, and you can't even make the drive in the winter, you know? So that's, that's skin in the game. That's putting on flesh for the gospel in these rural communities when you're out there. And so that's, you know, that says something about what it means to be the church and where Jesus' heart is and where our hearts ought to be too. Yeah, it is marginalized. The rural church is marginalized, even to the point where that you make well in the book, that when people like me who live in an urban or suburban area, when we think rural, most of us have a single picture in our head. Hmm. And part of the point you make is there's no single picture. Like even when you say rural, let's pause there. When you say rural, what is it you're talking about? What are the different types of rural that we're actually dealing with? Because everybody's going to have a different picture in their head and you recognize that there are multiple ways of looking at rural and each one of them is quite distinct from the other, isn't it? Right. 
Yeah, so often people equate rural with agrarian or rural with just at least agriculture. And um, certainly agriculture factors into a rural identity and it's just so visible and we're surrounded by uh, agriculture. But the statistics show that, you know, you're talking something like 8% of rural people are involved with agriculture compared to 1% in the city. And some of that, you know, it'd be interesting to compare in just brute numbers. Like what, what are you talking about when you, when you add that up, those percentages, because some of it's folks that live in urban areas, you know, small cities who drive out to work uh, on a farm or like a chicken processing plant or something like that. And, but the reality is that, and I guess some of it also is, you know, people doing the the kind of exotic stuff like growing lettuce on the rooftop in Chicago and whatever. But the reality is that in rural communities, not everybody is a farmer. Not everybody can has those farm skills, right? So it's there's a lot of diversity in that way. I think for me, when I talk about rural, there's different ways to define it. But what I'm most interested in is, is thinking about communities that are 2,500 people and less. And that number comes from the U.S. Census. And it also is a number that the USDA uses in the way that they lay out rurality and urbanity in counties across the United States. And what I like about that number, I mean, I don't think there's anything about magic about that number, but somewhere around there is where you start to have a different perception of the community that you live in. When you're under that number or somewhere around there, you kind of feel like you know people and you are known by people. Whereas there's somewhere, you know, around 2,500 and larger, you just can't keep track of anybody anymore. You don't know where everybody falls on the family tree. And of course, when you get into a much larger urban area, you don't expect to be known at all. You know, you can walk down the street and of course, like in blocks and whatever, there could be really deep connections, but you get out of that, you walk down the street, you get on the subway or something, you don't know people. And so part of what I think gives rural its distinctive character is that sense of knowing and being known and the way that that kind of plays out for good or for ill in our rural communities. It's interesting because those numbers kind of match the whole, the, the way it is in churches too. In small church essentials, I define it as 250 and under. So you've added a zero to that for a small town. Well, you haven't, but that's what's been added to it. And I think that makes sense in a in a church environment, they call it the 200 barrier, but under mm. 200 is certainly 250. You simply don't know everybody anymore. And in a, so in a small town, that feeling changes as well at one zero added to that at about 2,500. Obviously in a town of 1,500, you don't know everybody, but there is much more of a sense of knowing and being known within mm -hmm. a community. And then it hits a certain number and everything just shifts, so, which leads me to you talk about rural being really more about a worldview than yeah. it is about population. So explain that to us. What is the rural worldview and how is it more of a worldview than anything else? Yeah, right. I think it's really important because, I mean, it's just it's not just simply a population number, but I mean, I think it is that known and being knowing and being known, that known and knowable community. And what, you know, what comes with that? Well, I mean, there's a sense of wanting to guard reputations and people being really cautious about what is said and, and kind of being very quick to punish those that, that kind of speak out of turn. 
and do not work towards guarding the reputation of individuals in the community. Um, you know, and you, and you see this in its most horrific sense when whenever there's a case of like abuse or something like that, and you're just how, how rural communities deal with that. But in a positive sense, it's just like that people, people show up for one another. You, ex, you kind of have these roots that go way back. And yeah, there could be like, you know, grudges that go way back. But more often than not, it's that people show up for one another because they have those deep family ties that really transcend time. It's kind of that old thing where you're like, oh, you used to live in the old such and such house, right? And people remember who lived in, in what houses. And, and even though it's not the same yeah. family living any, there anymore, you have that sense that the community kind of continues off into the black and white days. And, and so that mentality of, you know, people, you are known by people. And, and so, and what that leads to that way that you got to be there and stick together. Like, I think that's really at the heart of a rural mentality. And yeah, agriculture's in there somewhere. We could t- talk about like how we define ourselves sometimes over and against like the city where, you know, where you see people say like, oh, well, a day in the country is worth two in the city or something like that, right? It's better to be out here, whatever. But I mean, I think that the, the heart of it really is that, you know, people, people know you. Yeah. So is that the rural worldview, is that part of what makes it more of a challenge for urban and suburban folks who move to a small community? They have a harder time being accepted there than maybe they expect. Is there an insulation then that happens because you know everybody, the people that you who come in and you don't know, one, they don't know what to call that house that three generations ago belonged to such and such a family, then that's why everybody refers to it as that. Yeah. And that acceptability, is that part of the challenge that's happening there? And especially in the last few years now, as we're coming out of uh, the shutdowns, we're seeing a, a demographic shift where not to the degree that it's being trumpeted as, but there is mm-hmm. some degree of people mm-hmm. moving to smaller towns because now they mm-hmm. realize I don't have to live in a big city with all the crowds paying that ridiculous amount of money because, hey, I can do this online. So mm-hmm. that shift is happening. So is, is it you can move to a small town, but you not, you're not a part of it yet until mm-hmm. and because it's a worldview. Is that part of what's happening? Yeah. No, and that's a, I think that's a struggle for people in general, but it really can be something that pastors and leaders in small town churches have to work through. I mean, how do you get to become part of that town? You can kind of marry in or bury in, you know, having a kid in school definitely helps, um, especially if they're involved in sports and kind of, you know, people see them very visibly on the team. Part of that is that you, you got to take the time to be present and kind of listen to the culture and read the culture. And I suppose that's a skill that you need in any place that you go, but it really takes precedence and, you know, it's preeminent in rural communities and you got to take the time to be with people and just listen to, to who they are and kind of start to find your space within that. And it takes time to build that trust. This is why the pacing, it's not that rural life is necessarily slower, but I think the pacing of being able to make certain changes and be able to connect with people in rural communities, that is slower because you've got to give people a chance to see where you're going to fit in on the structure. There's also a flip side to that. I mean, I've seen people, and this is how it's worked for us, I've seen people be be able to make progress in connecting with folks in rural communities who have not fit into the traditional structure. So they don't have the last name. They don't live in one of the, you know, the old golly house, but they're, they're there because of what you're talking about, you know, folks who have moved to rural areas even before the pandemic and maybe haven't felt that they're at home in the school system or in the churches. And so sometimes that's where a church plant can really grant, gain, get some traction is by kind of drawing a little 
you know, side bubble on the, the structure of the community and connecting with those folks who didn't quite fit into the longstanding structure. So yeah, it's taking the time to get to okay. know what it is, find your place, and then look for folks who also aren't fitting. So is there anything that the those who are pastoring doing ministry in rural communities, is there anything you would give as advice to them as to how to help be the connective tissue that helps maybe some folks from big cities and, and suburban areas coming into the small town, how, helping them to acclimate, helping, how can we be of service in that process that's happening in mm-hmm. small towns right now? Right. And, and, and all of this, I feel like these are kind of, these are kind of good things to do in any place, but especially in a small town rural setting, like be authentic. Don't try to be somebody that you're not. So like, don't put the cowboy boots on too fast. Like just be you uh, wear what's natural to you. Um, people appreciate that. And yeah, they get it that you're not from there. So just kind of own up to that and, and be you right. And I, that's one thing. And then just take that time. I mean, I, I remember talking to somebody who was involved in community leadership and he told me how he was serving in a different community in, in a community leadership capacity and stood up in a town meeting to say something to kind of weigh in on a like, you know, high tension issue. And somebody said, sit down, you're not from here. Um, and that's, uh, that's hard, right? Like that can really sting. Yeah. And that's not right. But I mean, I think that you, you just got to in one way roll with that and try to build some cred. You know, you take, you take some time to be with people over the long haul and then I, at some point, like they sort of see where you fit in. So yeah, take the time, be yourself, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Let's move along to the, to the second topic I want to look at today. Uh, you use the word acedia. Uh, so for most of us, we have no idea. It would be the first time most of our listeners have even heard the term. I remembered it vaguely, but had to look it up. <laughs> but you spend a whole chapter on it and you say some really important things out of it. So first of all, tell us what is acedia? Right. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Every time I talk about acedia with groups of pastors, everybody starts nodding their head and comes up and talks to me afterwards and says, this is what I've experienced, but I didn't have the vocabulary for it. And acedia was, it's in the catalog of the seven deadly sins. It's like, you know, it's also called sloth, but it's not laziness. It's the sense of like spiritual blah, right? That nothing I do matters. And um, that, that kind of God's not in what I'm doing, that I might as well just give up. And that really kind of came to the fore back when you had folks trying to live their faith out in like the deserts of Egypt, and they'd go out into the desert just to focus on prayer and focus on being with God. And it was called the noonday demon after Psalm 91. But after sometime in the afternoon, they'd sort of be saying, what am I doing here? Is this making any difference? And I just feel like that's perfect for what happens to us especially in rural communities, because sometimes I think, you know, we can look up and say, say, am I making any difference here? Is that any of this work, does it matter? And it's not that we got to be, you know, constantly stroked and kind of like told that we're doing a great job, but you just want to see, you know, some fruit. And sometimes that doesn't come so easily in, in these small communities with these very deep-seated cultures. And so, um, you know, it's just kind of this, this sense of like, does it matter? And, and, a lot of us are, I think, struggling through that. It, acedia is a sin because it's failing to take joy in God. It, it's sort of believing the lie about ourselves and about our, our lives and ministries that it doesn't matter. And that's where it becomes sinful. But before we get to that place of sin, you know, it, it might kind of fall under the modern guise of like burnout. You know, it, it could even sometimes be clinical depression, which is a sort of a different animal. But at its heart, it's questioning whether God is in anything we're doing and what we're doing makes any difference. 
Okay, so in in a urban center, maybe the issue is there's so much energy that it causes stress as a part of a burnout. But in a rural community, there's so little energy that it causes lethargy. And then that leads to mm-hmm. thoughts that are unbiblical and unhelpful. Is that what we're, what I'm hearing? Yeah, that's some of it. And I mean, it's sort of like you okay. throw a party and nobody comes kind of a thing, right? Like, so you, you prepare to preach your heart out on Sunday morning, you put all this time in on a, a sermon and you look out and see like, you know, 20 gray heads and you're like, okay, does this, does this matter? Or, you know, you do a youth ministry and you've got five kids that show up. And so does it matter? Right. And so at, at some level, those become uh, sinful inclinations to, to measure yourself by that and to fall into that kind of sense of law. Okay. So you then, you then talk about two typical results of a CDA, and then let's talk about after that, about how to over, uh, overcome mm-hmm. it, which you address as well. First of all, you yeah. say the two primary responses to a CDA tend to be either a longing to leave or just simply boredom. Yeah. How does that manifest, particularly in a rural context and in a ministry context? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's pretty classic that, that rural pastors often don't last long and um, see rural churches as stepping stones to the kind of real deal, which is the growing suburban church or whatever that is for them and, and move along. And some of that could just be cultural, like we were talking about earlier, where folks have a, tr- have a hard time fitting in, especially if they don't come from a rural background. But, but the, I think it's written into our American culture, right, that the rolling stone gathers no moss. And so it's like to move up is to move on. And so if, to say that, look, I've been serving a rural, a 50 something rural church for the last 10 years in this town of, in my case, right under 2000 people. You know, there, some people might be like, well, like, when are you going to kind of get a real job or something like that? And so there's that sense that that's often just really subtle that's kind of driving us to move along. And then sometimes we just, you know, you, you can get bored. You can be like, is anything of consequence happening here? And look, that can happen in any ministry setting, but it right. strikes me as maybe being a little more poignant in the rural church because you know, there's just not the the focus that that's paid to our rural community. You know, it's like, you know, if you're in Kansas City, if you're in Chicago or whatever, I mean, like people know where that is. They value it just because they've, they've heard of it. There's they've got sports teams and that sort of thing. What we pay attention to is what we value. That can sometimes just play out in really subtle ways that with the sense of boredom in rural places. But we got to learn how to overcome it. I mean, I think that's what happens either like Rural pastors either get jaded and just kind of slide over the edge into complete acedia, or they, they find strategies for, for overcoming it. And, you know, I think for me, if acedia, this, the sin place of acedia is failing to take joy in God, then do you flip it around, right? Like it is learning to take joy in God right where we are, to see God in all things and to be present to the ways that God is showing up and working his grace among this precious people that we've been honored to serve and called to serve. And so, you know, starting to be able to see those things and that's, that's easy to say, but not as easy to actually pull off. And I mean, I think the, you know, I don't want to sound flip, but you kind of have to pray your way through that. Right. And spend time in contemplative prayer, which is at its heart, being present to God, noticing God in a, in a really deep theological sense. And then you're able to kind of take that skill out into your ministry and into the, the rest of your life in the rural community. And now a short break to talk about something else. If you like the content you're hearing, here are two things you can do for us. First, forward this podcast to a friend. Second, 
consider becoming a financial supporter through Patreon, Venmo, or PayPal. Just go to carlvaders.com support. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us put these resources into the hands of the ministries that need them the most. Our support link is in the show notes. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Yeah. And speaking of prayer, you spend a full chapter really helpfully talking about the, the rural community and prayer and comparing it to the Desert Fathers and so on that basically, oh. hey, these these remote places are where people uh, biblically and very quickly post-biblically went to yeah. really feel a sense of closeness to God and to pray and get rid of distractions. And hey, we're here already. <laughs> and you do, I think, lay out some really, really helpful things. So for those who are ministering in a rural context, I really encourage to get the book and to lean into those things because it really does uh, help to understand the value of place, which is is the third topic we'll get into now. If one of the ways that we overcome acedia is to, I believe you phrase it as we have to learn to praise in place, that is, mm. or or as the old phrase is, you know, bloom where you're planted would be another yeah. way of, that we're familiar with using. So let's talk about the importance of place. I love the way you phrase it. And by the way, you are not just important content, but you write well and and very, uh, I was going to say entertainingly, that's not right, pithily. I, I love phrases in one spot. You say, sipping a mocha in Harvard Square somehow seems more consequential than having coffee in a small town gas station, but it's not. You do word pictures like this on a regular basis. So as a writer myself, I have to say props to you for multiple times where I went, that's a really wonderful turn of phrase here. And here's another one. Talking about people in rural communities, and particularly the pastors, you say, we don't stay because we can't pull together bus fare to the city. We stay because we think it's the right thing to do for our own soul and for the soul of the community. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the importance of physical place. In episode 34 of this podcast, where I interviewed Rick Heemstra, he talked about in a high-tech world now that geography in some ways is actually becoming more important than ever before. So what is the importance of geography, especially in rural ministry? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I, thanks for your words, your kind words about my book, The Craft Matters to Me. So yeah. Yeah, um, I could tell. But, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I think I could say a couple of things about place. And one might track back to what we were talking about earlier with the ways that rural ministry is often either or rural places in general are often either idealized or disparaged. And part of that, I think, is the, the way that we can risk falling into a, a single story. And the Nigerian writer Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, she talks about the danger of a single story. There's the TED talk that she gives out there. And, and we try to tell that single story about rural, right? That everybody's a farmer or rural. It's the pace is slow or life is simple or something like that. The one that's maybe the most malicious is the narrative of rural decline, right? That just rural places are all falling apart. 
And so we got to get beyond those single and simple stories and really start to get into the texture of rural communities and pay attention to that. Get to know the uniqueness of place. Um, you know, I, I love like Frederick Beekner. He's got a lot of good things to say. The late, great Frederick Beekner. And he talks about listening yeah. to your life. Well, listen to the life of this place, right? The, the Listen to your place. And I think we got to kind of get into that Um what, what makes this place unique? What makes it tick? I mean, just to notice in that way is really the first act of loving place. And, and yeah, it can be kind of a strategy where you're trying to know the place to be able to more effectively minister there. And I, I think that's all right. But but just in its the sheer grace of knowing a place um, is just paying attention to it, right? Like just loving it because it's there, because God made it. And I think a little bit about like the parable of the sower, you know, and, and Jesus talks about these different kinds of seed and the sower goes out and to sow the seed and, and the seed is destroyed and gobbled up in all these creative ways. And, but, and so it's kind of like, what's the soil of our place? It not, it's not all going to be the same. Pay attention to the, the ways that there, there's kind of unique contours here. And of course, it's really obvious if you bring in a farming metaphor and you think about if you've got rocky soil, you, you run cattle. And if you've got a bunch of, uh, you know, briars, you run goats. And if you've got great, great soil for, and great climate for wheat, like we do in central Kansas, then you, you grow wheat. But, you know, what is the soil of your place? And uh, mm. kind of taking the time to pay attention to that and listen to that. I think especially in a rural community, that's so important because in, in urban and suburban setting, if you don't know your neighbors, it's really not that big a deal. You're not yeah. expected particularly to. But the, the more rural a place is, the more it's expected that you're not just going to be a part of the life of your church, but that you're yeah. going to be a light, part of the life of the greater community around you with the people that you are physically, geographically closer to, that yeah. is a much bigger deal the smaller the town is. And as ministers, especially, we need to, one, recognize the importance of, of being involved on that level, and two, receive blessing and be a part of the blessing that that brings. We have opportunity, I think, to build bridges with the people physically in proximity to us in a smaller community, far more than in a bigger city. If I were to go to my physical neighbors here and invite them over for dinner or whatever, they'd ask, they would basically ask, okay, what's the angle? Uh, <laughs> but in a rural community, uh, it's not completely the opposite of that, but it's far less likely to raise uh, red flags, I would imagine, because people just simply do physically know each other by the geographical proximity, right? Right, right. Well, and you get that you get a chance to get to know people over the long term if you're open to that, because you can bump into them over and over again. You know, you see them at the football game and, you know, you, you see them at the community, the community event and you, you see them at the post office. And so like you're you, when you're part of the community like that, like you get it, you're building trust just by being kind and being present. But then you get a chance to be open to people's lives. And, you know, especially for pastors, they're watching you. Um, they know you're the pastor, even if you don't know who they are. And, and sometimes there are these moments, right? I mean, the obvious ones where they lose a loved one. If they're not part of a church, they lose a loved one. And they call you up and ask if you'll be willing to do the funeral, even though you feel like you hardly know the person. But but then there's just also those those chances where you can speak some some word of goodness, some word of the gospel into their lives and over the long term. And, and just sometimes when the people open up to you, they're ready to talk because you've spent the time getting to know them. So, yeah, it's like there, there's yeah. those two lines on the, the graph. I mean, it's, yeah, the placedness, but also that time, that long term presence. Yeah. Demographics and trends tend to matter more in bigger cities and in bigger churches. And demographics and trends mean almost nothing. 
mm. in smaller churches and in smaller towns. We tend to live outside on the margins from the major trends yep. and demographics. And so you just have to sit down and get to know people, which I think gives us opportunity to be incarnational, the term you used earlier in our wow. ministry, which is what we ought to be anyway. Before we do get to the the last pieces of the lightning round and so on, I do want to spend some time on, you spent an entire chapter on talking about uh, needing new metrics. And this really registered with me because right now in my next book that I'm actually currently writing, I'm going to be talking a lot about that. I expect to quote you multiple times in the next book that comes out. We're going to be corresponding a couple of times because I think you wrote your book. You were writing God's Country at about the same time I was writing Small Church Essentials. Mm. They both came out at just about the same time. And we both used the same word to describe the charm and the challenge of the smaller environment. We both used the word weird. Mm. <laughs> I said, you know, I asked the question, why is my church so weird? And then talked about it. And the way you put it was this, we need to complicate our understanding of growth and what it takes to achieve growth in rural congregations. We need new metrics to measure our work. It's time to get weird. <laughs> so what does that mean? And what does that look like? If we have, if we can't use the standard metrics, which I fully agree with, what does it mean to get weird in trying to figure out what health and strength and growth looks like in a, in the rural environment? Yeah. Okay. Sometimes rural pastors use this line of thinking as a way to kind of just escape from their own sense of failure, right? Because it's, it's hard often in rural communities and you're, you're working at making a church grow or their own sense of inadequacy. And, and so at some level, like, yeah, we're always, we want to be paying attention to, to what's happening, you know, or new people coming and whatever. But I think that it just ultimately, you can't measure the hidden life of the church. And I think part of the gift of rural is that it makes that so clear to us, right? I mean, like I mentioned this pastor that was in rural South Dakota. I mean, if you're in a town of 80 and you got a church of 30, like, you know, he was a Lutheran church and like the rest of the folks in that community are cultural Lutherans that don't come to his church. Well, what do you do with that? Like, I mean, you're going to be connecting with people, but he's like, I was, I was happy if we had one new person a year and it could be a baby right? Like a baby yeah. born into our church. So you just, you're not going to be able to really measure the impact of that congregation, especially in the kingdom terms, if you're just looking at, at numbers and budget, which is what we all, everybody always tends to do. But, and then when we follow that line, we always get kind of stuck on like Charles Finney's like new measures for revival, right? Like we're all like, what works? Like, what do we do to kind of get people to, to whatever we want to do, make a commitment or, or something, show up on Sunday mornings. But since I wrote God's Country, I'm, I'm even wondering if it's not only that we need to get new metrics, but that we need just kind of to lean away from the idea of metrics altogether. And I wonder if the word that we're looking for isn't metrics, but a rule. Um, and you think about the ancient church and like some of the, the standout figures, like they don't create metrics for measuring what's happening in their churches. They create rules of life. And so, you know, the famous one would be like the rule of St. Benedict, but there's a bunch more. And so, and maybe this is just playing with words, but if you think about a rule, that's saying these are the commitments that we have, the ways that we want to live our shared life together and the ways that we want to aim our lives toward Christ and his kingdom. But it's kind of letting go or holding more lightly the way that those living out those commitments is going to achieve any definable result, like that it's going to get us X number of people or whatever. So I wonder, I wonder if we just want to lean away from metrics altogether and move towards a rule. That is really registering with me 
in a very real way here. It's, it's a part of what I write about and talk about a lot. And uh, again, the current book that I'm working on right now, I'm, I was planning on using it. I still am. I'm going to be doing a whole chapter on this whole metrics and how do we remeasure it and some of what you talk about that we need to get weird. We need to look at it differently. But that idea of a rule, a metrics is simply putting out a, a ruler of measurement. And we say, well, which thing are we going to measure? The number of people that are here, the number of people yeah. that are in small group, the number of people we have compared percentage wise to the size of the town. But all of these are, I think, really artificial ways. Uh-huh. And nothing in the Bible that matches these that God is calling us to. Uh-huh. But the idea of a rule that here is God's standard for measurement, here is what God expects us to do. And how are we measuring up to that rule, to those expectations that God has placed upon us is a much more biblical, healthier, but quite frankly, less definitive way of, def- of, of looking at it, which is, I think, what scares us. We yeah. like numbers because we can compare them with something else. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, if, if you got to have some numbers, I think you at least want to take it, pull, pull them one step back from kind of what you're trying to measure. So rather than like measure, here's what I mean by that, like rather than measure like, okay, how many people are on Sunday morning? And that, that's helpful just to kind of know what, how big your church is and what the dynamics are and whatever. It's good to pay attention to that. But rather than just saying like, here's how many people we got on a Sunday morning, be measuring like over, uh, over time, like, well, how many people have we talked to? about Jesus, right? I, I was talking to one rural leader. He says, you got to count the casts, not the fish, right? So, or even are, are we casting, right? Like, are we at least encouraging our congregation to do that work? We don't know what we're going to get, but do, do we at least do that? And, and then some of the other stuff that I mean, the most important things are really immeasurable, right? Like love God and love your neighbor. Well, how do you measure that? And so uh, yeah. just keeping that in front of people, are we actively loving God through our worship, through our prayer? Are we actively, you know, growing in our relationship with Christ and going deeper? And then are we loving our neighbor? I mean, this again, could be, it could be a kind of a a way to escape from doing the work, but like, are we loving our neighbor? As Stephen Whitmer says, the gospel is lavish, right? And so like, are we demonstrating that lavish gospel just by like the things that the church normally does? You know, you drive an hour down to the hospital to sit with somebody for 15 minutes before a surgery, like how do you measure the value of that? And so are we doing that sort of yeah. thing in our neighborhood as well? Yeah. I, well, I, when I do my conferences, sometimes I talk about how small church pastors, we are really good at being gloriously inefficient with our time yeah. while still yeah. doing, yeah. while still doing things that are actually important. So as you said, you know, sitting for half a day or a day or more with someone who's dying or in the hospital or hurt, that is an inefficient use of our time, but it's an absolutely important and essential usage of our time is what we're called to do. We're not always called to do the efficient thing. Yeah. And and that drives me crazy because I like efficiency. Right. Yeah, me too. And and I mean, I think for me, it's part of it. It's concentrating on the rightness of the work itself. That might be what a rule gets us to a little bit and just it's it gets easy to say hold lightly your your metrics but i think we just we just really never know the full fruitness full fruitfulness of what we're doing and part of that is we won't know until the other side of eternity but i think also we just never can be completely confident about the ways that we are impacting people's lives when we show up and are present with the love of christ yeah based on that what would you say kind of as we begin to wind this down to encourage the discouraged rural pastor today, what did you have anything that you would like to drop into them to say, Hey, uh, 
here's some encouragement for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, these have been hard times. I guess I would just say, brother, sister, I'm there with you. I mean, these these genuinely have been hard times for the rural church in the last couple of years, like they've been challenging for everybody in the church. Just know that God has not given up on you or on your congregation and be confident in your own unique giftings and bring out those treasures old and new for the service of the kingdom, whatever that is. And just in that confidence, ask yourself like, all right, God, what What's next? What more can I do out of this love that I have for you among these people? And that's beautiful. Well, from that, let's get to the lightning round questions, shall we? We'll see how you can make it through these, okay? All right. Question number one, what are the biggest changes you've seen in your field of ministry in the last few years, and how have you adapted to it? Yeah. Well, I mean, rural ministry... I guess we could say it is now a thing and it sort of started to become a thing around the time when God's country came out. There was an, a kind of a wave of some really great resources that came out around that time and people are doing it or attempting to do it more self-consciously now. And I think that's, that's really good. I, I sort of feel like we're on the, the second wave of like rural resources and kind of second wave of thinking we've got beyond just the fact that like, Oh, rural's here. We should pay attention to it and asking like, all right, well, what is, how do we kind of get out into that nitty gritty? And, you know, the other piece is I would say the biggest challenge is like, I mean, I, I don't, don't make me say the word pandemic, but it's like we're, we're all recovering from that. And I think that yeah. we've, we've noticed again, like we're receiving again, the simple grace of being together and that nothing takes the place of that, right? Like that online and distance and campuses and whatever, none of that matters if we just aren't together. And so I think especially in rural places that we're noticing how important that's, that always has been and recovering that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think rural is, is, like you said, becoming a thing again for a decade or two, a couple of decades, we were like, oh, we forgot the cities. And we all spent a lot of time doing conferences and books about re reclaiming the yeah. cities that we had abandoned. And then we realized, oops, and we swung the pendulum too far. We got to look at the rural. And in fact, I think at one point in the book, I know at one point in the book, you say it's really not a move from uh, rural to from urban to rural, it's a move from urban and rural to suburban that yeah. has happened in the last couple of decades. And so yeah. on both ends, of, while the suburban church tends to be thriving, if you take a look at any map of where the major mega churches are in America, like 80% or more of them are in growing suburban areas. Uh, and on both ends of that, both the rural and the urban are the ones that tend to be neglected. And then we swing the pendulum back and forth. It's like both and folks, both and <laughs> let's remember yeah. the big cities and the small towns. They both matter. All right. Second question. What free resource like an app or a website has helped you lately that you would recommend for small church ministry? Yeah. Well, specifically for folks who are laboring away in rural communities and rural churches, I guess one secular website that I would recommend um, I mean, it's secular, so it's got all kinds of stuff, but it's really tracking different sorts of rural trends. And that is called the Rural Yonder, comes out of Kentucky. Um, okay. Then for something that is speaking specifically into the life of the church, I'd make a couple of recommendations. One would be rural advancement. And that's with Dwight Sandoz, who's a, out of Trinity Bible College in North Dakota. We've got a lot of great stuff on there. I also love Small Town Summits, which is rooted in New England, but has a lot of resources that can translate to you know, any place in North America, I think. And then there's the Rural Home Missionary Association out of Morton, Illinois, which is my hometown. And yeah. um, they're, they're doing some great work there, there too. Yeah, I've worked with the last two of those. I'm not familiar with the first two. I'll take a look at those and we will put links to all of those in the show notes for everybody. Uh, third question, what's the best piece of ministry advice you've ever received? 
Yeah. You know, I think probably came more in the form of kind of an offhanded comment from a grocery store clerk that I was buying my gallon of milk. And she said, well, there goes Brad always in such a hurry. And I, it caught me up short because I, I was walking with my son and I was like, why'd you say that? And, you know, and then I, I hurried off. For me, it's like, it was a realization that I need to slow down and I need to be present and I need to be with people. And in the rural church, you know, hurry can offend people. But I think a lot of times, where does our hurry come from? It's not just because we got a lot to do. We do, but it's because we have a, maybe a sense of hurt or disappointment and we're trying to like kind of hurry our way into making something happen. And then we, we miss things. We, we don't notice what, what's happening around us and, and we, we miss opportunities to just be with people and, and talk to them. So slow yeah. down, be present. It's fascinating because I, I've, I've done enough of these questions now. I'm beginning to see some patterns emerge in this ministry advice thing. No one has yet mentioned the best piece of ministry advice have ever ha- has ever had anything to do with hurry up, do more, work harder. That's never been the ministry advice ever. But maybe two thirds of them have some sense of what you just talked about, slowing mm-hmm. down, t- take it easy, spend time with the people, walk slowly through the pews, slowly through the lobby. That's yeah. always a ministry advice. And there's got to be some reason we keep receiving it because we're doing something other than that far mm. too much of the time, I think. Yeah, very helpful advice. And then the last one is what's the funniest or weirdest thing you've ever seen in church? So, yeah. So you mean besides like green jello salads? Um, but, <laughs> but, oh, yeah, if that's so, the funniest or weirdest, go with that. <laughs> yeah. During my, my, the early years of my ministry, I was preaching my heart out one Sunday morning. I hear this clip, clip sound. And uh, I'm like, what in the world is happening? I told my wife right after she I think I, I said, I think somebody was cutting their fingernails as I was preaching my sermon. And she says, no way, that's not possible. It must have been a little kid putting the marker caps back on or something as they were coloring in the pews. And I, um, after everybody had left, I went and I found that not only were they cutting their fingernails, but they had left them all in a little pile for me to discover. So there you go. That's the funniest or weirdest thing. People will do strange stuff and you just got to kind of be in there with them. Oh, I, until you mentioned it, I'd forgotten that happened to me too. And it all came rushing back to me. Yeah. It went on like she must have had every single finger to do because it was a while until I finally had to pause and go, I'm sorry, would you mind not doing that? And she looked at me like, oh, you, know what? Like, oh, you can hear that? Like, Yes, everybody can hear that. Oh, well, hey, your book, God's Country, Faith, Hope, and the Future of the Rural Church, there's so much more in it than what we just talked about. It is an easy read. It is a helpful read. As I mentioned earlier, it is really well written. That's a, another thing about the art of writing. I, You and I both, when we do it, I don't want to just put the content in there. I want to put it in a way that makes it an enjoyable thing for people to read because they'll read more of it and they'll get more out of it. And you do that. Well, you, you, you write good content and you write it in a way that is compelling and makes people want to continue that. So I highly, highly recommend your book to others. If people do want to follow up with you in any way, how can people find you online? Yeah, you can discover me at doxologyproject.com and I've got a, another book that came out earlier this year on communion. So just more than one trick in me. And um, yeah, but the best way to find me is probably online through my blog. 
Great. We'll put links to both of those in the show notes and I will get a hold of that newest book too. I wasn't aware of it. I'm grateful to know that's happening out there. I'd like to read some more from you as well. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for your commitment to the rural church. Thank you for writing about it so well and so helpfully and for the help that you are giving to some, uh, maybe some discouraged pastors today, but hopefully also to some pastors who are uh, looking at places of ministry who now might not overlook the rural options so quickly. Let's hope that that is part of what happens out of this type of ministry as well. So thanks a lot, Brad. That warms my heart, Carl. So great to be on here with you. Thank you. You got it. So in addition to the expected topics, this had a few helpful surprises for me. Among the key takeaways that I got were these. First, that the corresponding small town size to small church size is something for us to consider. That above a certain size of town and above a certain size of church, it can either help or hinder us from knowing and being known by the people in our community and the people in our church. I'd always known that about the small church dynamic, but I wasn't fully aware of that about the small small town dynamic. And hopefully a lot of that was helpful to you as well. I, that's really important for us to consider. Secondly, noticing the repeated pattern of best ministry advice was something that just struck me in the lightning round. When I've asked that question to so many people now, what's the best piece of ministry advice you've ever received? A high majority of them talk about slowing down and spending time with people and nobody nobody looks back at their best piece of ministry advice they've ever received as work harder, do more, and go faster. I, I don't think that's a mistake. So that, I think, is really worth noticing and repeating. And then thirdly, this is so huge for me, the importance that he talked about of using rule, R-U-L-E, rather than metrics, as we consider how to assess church growth and success. This is a concept that I will definitely explore further myself. This episode was produced by Veronica Beaver. It was edited by Phil Vaders. Original theme music was written and performed by Jack Wilkins of jackwilkinsmusic.com. The graphic design is by Solomon Joy. And me, I'm Carl Vaders, and I hope to talk with you again in the church lobby. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.